The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory Join of us God. on this journey as our pastor, Justin Hibbard, leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. Well, we're going to continue today with looking at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. And we're going to go through these churches. But I want to begin today by asking a question that's been posed for hundreds of years, if not thousands. When they read the book of Revelation, you read chapters 2 and 3. The question that you're most likely to ask is, why seven churches? And not just why seven churches, but why these seven churches? What's so particular about these seven churches? And that question is important, because how you answer that question may determine what you think about the book of Revelation, what you think the purpose of the book of Revelation is, and why John is writing, or why Jesus is giving it to John to write. So throughout history, people have answered this question in many different ways, in many interesting ways. One way is that some say that the seven churches parallel seven periods of church history. And here is one demonstration of them. There are lots of different variations. I think this one comes from an Adventist movement. You see the the date 1844 there at the the bottom, which is an important date for Adventists. One interesting one that that I found this week was that in Matthew 13, Jesus gives seven parables. And someone noted that In each of these seven parables, there's a principle there. They call them the kingdom principle, the principle of the sower, the wheat and tares, mustard seed, the leaven, and so forth. That if you look at the churches, all of them sort of line up exactly with these seven kingdom principles. I thought that was an interesting thought as well. And it's not to say that one of these is correct and all of them are wrong. It could be that all of them are correct. Who knows how the Lord is using them. But I sort of have a, a less, what's the word, a less... Um, sexy interpretation of these seven churches, and much more along the lines of much more practical. And um, this is just my opinion. But when you think about where Patmos is on the island, uh, Patmos the island just off the coast of Turkey, not far from Ephesus. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking, okay, why is John here on this island? Well, he's on the island because he's in prison. Many scholars believe this is as late as 90 A.D. when John is writing way into his old age. And he's writing this revelation. He gets this vision. Now, why is he on the island of Patmos? He's on the island of Patmos because the, the Romans wanted to stop him from preaching the gospel. And so if the Romans wanted to stop him from preaching the gospel, I'm thinking to myself, they're not going to be too keen on passing out a letter that John has written. John says, I got this letter. You mind handing it out when next trip to, to Ephesus and Smyrna and so forth? I'm thinking, no way. But now if I'm thinking about this, and I think about what happened when Paul was put in prison, what happened when Peter and Silas and all of those others were put into prison, what happened? All the prison guards became believers as well. So Paul is, so John isn't on necessarily just a penal colony in a mining camp. He is on a missions retreat, right? Everyone's on a missions retreat. This is evangelism camp here. I mean... The best way to make Christians is to take an apostle, put him on an island, and put a whole bunch of other uh, uh, people with them as well. And so while John is on this island, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how many people are becoming believers. And this is an opportune time. Or how many believers are also coming to the same island because they were caught preaching the gospel. 
And so John is going to have to get this letter out to the churches. And I think why one of the purposes of this letter and what we see throughout the book of Revelation is the theme of the persecuted church. The church is undergoing major persecution. If this is 90 AD at the time, the church is already going through major persecution, which we'll see later on. So if John is, if John, this message might be that Jesus wants to get to his churches to say, hey, you are going through some grave persecution. And, and you need to stand firm. You need to understand that I will overcome. We will have troubles in, this, troubles in this world, but take heart, for I will overcome the world. And these churches are in a u- unique position. It could be that one messenger, or it could be that jo- uh, John had given this letter to seven different messengers. It might be that he gave it only to one messenger. If you look at the, the travel, it goes from Patmos to Ephesus, and a natural, a natural journey right up the coast of Turkey, and then inward into Thyatira, and then down south and a little bit east to, to uh, Laodicea. So perhaps it is that this one messenger is to take this letter to seven different churches. Or perhaps it's that seven different messengers are to take this letter to the churches. It might also be that John, that, that each church is not just receiving their letter, they're receiving the whole revelation of John. All 22 chapters. In a sense, it's an open letter so that Sardis can see what, what Ephesus is doing and Ephesus can see what Smyrna is doing. And if you look at these seven churches, there are such, there's such a, a, um, a difference between them. Smyrna, as we'll see, is flat out broke. They're poor. They're homeless. They've got nothing. Other churches are materialistic. And maybe it's that God is calling these seven churches to hold each other accountable to commune together. I mean, they're not very far away. It's quite possible that they can come and encourage each other and build each other up, in this, especially in this time. I have another thought as well. If this message, because these messages, what we'll see today, isn't just for the church of Smyrna, it's for the, it's for the church, all the churches in the Roman Empire. And so it could be that these seven churches were commissioned with the great task, and that was to get the revelation of Jesus out to the rest of the world. And they're kind of at a unique place. Turkey is said, especially Istanbul or Constantinople, depending on how you look at it throughout history, is, is where the east meets the west. And so perhaps it is that the three churches on the west coast, which is uh, Pergamum, uh, Smyrna, and Ephesus, have the responsibility to take that message west. And that the four, four churches on the east are responsible for taking that message down south and east towards Jerusalem, Egypt, Judea, Syria, even further out uh, east as well. Who knows? But these churches are at a very unique point. And you think about it, I I spent a lot of time thinking about our missionaries in Turkey because after reading this and looking at this and looking at this map, I realized something. Turkey is really a stronghold of the Muslim world, isn't it? That it's the first country... uh, basically the first country before you get into the Islam empire. And so our, our Christians, our missionaries that we support here and a number of other uh, missionaries throughout Turkey still today have such an important task, and that is to protect the church, to stand firm in the midst of persecution, and to spread the gospel to the ends of the world, specifically to the Muslim world. So isn't that interesting that even today, these seven areas, this country is so prominent in the Christian faith and probably dealing with 
some of the same things that some of these churches were dealing with uh, centuries ago. Well, we're going to take a look at Smyrna. So if you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 8. John writes, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Again, we find, just as we did in Ephesus, we'll see in all the other um, letters to to the churches in Revelation, Jesus begins by identifying himself in a unique way. And here he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who died and came to life again. That's going to be important as we look at this letter and as we see things develop later on. But let's look at the city of Smyrna for a minute. We saw that it was north of Ephesus, between Ephesus and Pergamum, thank you, and that it was a port city. Because it was a port city, it had a very rich industry, and that was the trade industry. And so the the city of Smyrna was reported to be a very wealthy place to live. As we saw in Ephesus, the focus on idolatry in Ephesus was the worship of the goddess Artemis. We saw the temple to Artemis. And Smyrna was a little different. Reportedly, it was a city that was uh, engrossed with emperor worship. In fact, it had one of the... um, one of the privileges, I, su- I suppose you would say, in the Roman Empire, of being one of the first city cities um, sanctioned s- to do emperor worship. And so the way this would work is that you would go to the temple and you would take a pinch of incense and you'd sprinkle on the altar and say something like, Caesar is Lord. And for doing that, you would get some sort of mark, some sort of stamp of approval. And, and without that stamp of approval, you know, we talk, you, you're watching the debates, I'm sure, and there, there's a lot of talk about this, like, national identification card to prove that you are a U.S. citizen. Well, there, you couldn't do anything unless you had that mark, unless you had that, that piece of approval that said you had done your diligence making a sacrifice to the God, or to the emperor. And... Without that, good luck finding a job, good luck buying things, good luck finding a home. And suddenly, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, wow, this sounds awfully familiar for other things that we find in Revelation, perhaps even the mark of the beast. And uh, perhaps this was the warning to them, that, hey, don't take the mark of the beast. And so this was the city of Smyrna. So we, we, we hear in the commendation that, that Jesus gives to the city of Smyrna, it says, hey, I understand that you're afflicted. I understand that you're impoverished. I understand you have nothing. This was a church that was just holding on. They had nothing. And I think about this and I'm like, man, how easy would it have been for someone to succumb to the temptation of just saying to themselves, you know what, it's no big deal. I'm just going to go to the altar. 
I'll make that little pinch of incense. It's just lip service. It's nothing else. I'm not really sacrificing to the, the God of the, or the emperor as the God. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying it. It's not a big deal. I think to myself, wow, you know, what are the things that the Lord would indict me on for not standing firm against? And, and it's easy for us to look into that culture and say, wait, going to the temple to make that pinch of all incense, that sacrifice, is not pleasing to the Lord. And these people did not do it, that we're told. They know, and the Lord knows their poverty. He knows about the slander. He knows everything about them. And then he gives them an exhortation. So, unlike Ephesus, we saw they had a good thing. They saw, we saw that they had a bad thing against them. Here, they have a commendation, but they don't have a reprimand. And in some churches, we'll see that they don't have a commendation, but they do have a reprimand. And what is the exhortation? The exhortation, the encouragement is, do not... Be, or do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. Now, what's this deal about ten days? Why, why ten days? Is this ten days? And it, that doesn't seem like a very intense persecution. Maybe it was a, an intense ten, ten days. But is this what John means literally? Well, scholars believe that the persecution of the church by the hands of the Romans endured for ten emperors. And it began with Nero in the mid-first century, and it ended with Diocletian in 313. So we're talking about a persecution that lasted for 250 years, not ten days. Now remember, John is writing this letter, and this letter is going to circulate among the churches. And if you're caught saying anything bad about the emperor, anything bad about the Roman emperor, empire, you're going to be killed. So anyone who has a letter that says, beware, watch out for Nero, he's bad news. Watch out for Diocletian, he is the dragon, he is the beast. You're gonna, not only will you die for writing that letter, but you're going to die for having that letter. So when John writes this letter, i got to think he's writing it very cryptically, very carefully, to keep people from getting uh, into too much trouble for just having this revelation. And so that's why I think that there is ten, um, that this ten day period is referring to ten emperors. It's also going to refer to something else that we'll see in just a minute. Now one of the, I want to look at three of these emperors in three specific instances of persecution. One of them was Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius is known for executing Polycarp, or at least Polycarp was executed while Marcus Aurelius was on the throne. Polycarp's a very interesting man. He is the pastor of the Church of Smyrna. And he is the last remaining disciple of the original apostles. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, the very one writing to the Church of Smyrna. He was born right around the time that, well, actually a little bit before the time that John was writing the letter. He might have been like 25, 20, 25 when John was writing this letter. And then he dies in 155 A.D. Very interesting story about Polycarp. First of all, he's at like 86 or something years old. And they arrest him. They say, Polycarp, you are to renounce your faith in Christ. He says, no way. I love his response. He says, I've walked with the Lord for 80-something years, and he's never done anything wrong to me. Why would I turn my back on him? And because he said that, they put him in prison. It said that his prayer in prison, his, his communion with the Lord, 
was so powerful that, of course, the prison guards repented and repented of, of arresting Polycarp to begin with and bringing him in. Well, he refused to recant his faith. And so they sent him to be, uh, to be burned at the stake. Only when they lit the fire, the flames actually never burned him. They created an ark around him, and he was saved. Except then the soldiers stabbed him and killed Polycarp. So here was the pastor of the, the church of Smyrna, who is going to, him, he himself is going to face the persecution that John told the church at Smyrna. Going back to the ten emperors, we can look at another one, and that is Aurelian. Now this is a very fascinating story. Because while Aurelian was on the throne, there was a the group called the Theban Legion. I don't know if you guys know this story or not. Theban Legion has been painted about in a number of paintings, including El Greco, for those of you who like Spanish art, back in the 1400s or so. El Greco painted something, and, was, and he paints uh, St. Sebastian was part of uh, the Theban Legion. The Theban Legion was a group of men, 6,666 men, Christian men. And the Theban Legion were part of the Roman, the Roman Legion, the Roman Empire. Now, there are, there's, different, there's conflicting reports. Some believe that it was 6,660 men. Some believe it was 6,666 men, but nonetheless, there is a significant uh, agreement there and a significant number that we, re we see in Revelation. And I found this totally interesting. Well, according to tradition, Aurelian approached this legion. All of these men were believers. And he said, you will recant your faith. They said, no way. In fact, St. Sebastian is the one who's credited with, with convincing the legion to stand firm in their faith. And so Aurelian says, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to execute every tenth man until you, until you recant your faith. And so he does. Executes every tenth man. Will you recant your faith now? No way. He executes every tenth man again until the entire legion is executed. We're talking about some horrific stuff in that Roman Empire during that time. It was dangerous to be a Christian. Going back to the, la to the emperors, I want to look at the last emperor. Because the last emperor is known to be the most grueling, the most gruesome, the most grotesque, the most persecutor of the Christian faith and of the church. Under him, there would be a period, he was the 10th emperor, and his persecution will last for 10 years, 303 to 313. It was under Diocletian that, um, that 17,000 were <coughs> martyred in one month, that 144,000 Egyptians, uh, Egyptian Christians were martyred, and that over 700,000 martyred were martyred from deplorable conditions because they were sentenced to prisons, they were sentenced to death, uh, you know, to uh, prison camps, and to poverty, just like Smyrna was. So this is a very gruesome person. And these were the ten emperors. Perhaps this is even referring to the ten horns. Uh, who knows? I mean, there's so many, there's so much significance in here that, that we, we could find in Revelation that I was just startled by a lot of these things. You know, but despite all of this, we understand why Jesus writes what he does when he introduces himself to the, to the church at Smyrna. And it's not just Smyrna that's going to be persecuted, it's everyone who's going to be persecuted. And his message is this. This is the one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. 
It doesn't matter that you're going to face ten emperors because I came before them and you bet your life that I will reign after them. That is the message of the Lord. I love that he starts his letter. You will be persecuted, but I am Alpha and Omega. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. I also love that he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. Reminding them that their hope is not in this world, it's in the final resurrection. He gives them a promise here. I love this, these promises that he gives to them. First he says in verse 10, he says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The word for victor's crown is the word Stephanos. Stephanos. Does that word Stephanos ring a bell? Stephanos was the first martyr of the Christian church. How poetic that the first martyr of the Christian church, his name means victor's crown. And i got to think that Stephen was, uh, he was a hero in the faith even at this time. In the first century, later on in the first century, second, third century, as these persecutions are going. And they're being reminded of what John is writing to the church at Smyrna. They're saying, we will get a victor's crown. Yes, we'll be like Stephen. Stephen, who, who stood before the... The, the, rule, the Jewish rulers facing the stones and looking up into heaven and seeing the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He was given that honor. Even though they would face death, they, would, they, they, could, they could see it. They could see that Stephen was, uh, this was following in the footsteps of Stephen. This was receiving their Stephanos. And the word Stephanos refers not only, not to like a, a jeweled crown, but to a crown that a, an Olympian would get for winning the race. It was uh, one of those wreath crowns. But we also see this word Stephanos in Revelation chapter 4. Remember I said that every time we see a promise, it refers to something later on in the book of Revelation. And this is neat too, because what we see, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. And what do they do? They lay their crowns at the feet of the Lord. They lay their stephanos, their crowns, at the feet of the Lord. Have you ever wondered, I've always wondered, how is it that someone could face a lion in an arena? That someone could face being lit on fire? That someone could face these great persecutions, even the long ones like going to prison? living in deplorable conditions and not recant their faith, but how easy of a temptation it would be to say, okay, I give up. And these people did not. The reason is, is because it wasn't theirs to begin with. The church at Smyrna had amazing poverty, but what does Jesus say about them? You are rich. You know, Jesus does not condemn being a wealthy Christian. He does not say you can't have wealth. He says it's difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because wealth becomes an idol. And like we saw in Luke chapter 18 with the rich young ruler who comes to the Lord, and the Lord says, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, hey, you know, obey your parents. He, he basically gives them the last six commandments, but doesn't give them the first four, because the, the last six have to do with his relationship with other men. He says, I'm good with that. I've done those things. And he says, okay, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Why doesn't Jesus say, why doesn't Jesus say, love the Lord your God? Why doesn't he say, why doesn't he say, don't have any other idols? Go uh, remember the Sabbath day. 
Why, is, why doesn't he go back to the first four commandments? The, the answer is because he's getting at the heart of the issue, and the heart of the issue is that this man did not love the Lord. He followed the Lord to some degree, but he did not love the Lord. That's what we saw with Ephesus. They went through the motions, but they lost their first love. And so it, it, it's not a, a condemnation on us that those of us who have wealth, and, and by the way, even though we're in the 99%, at least most of us, I think, even though we're in the 99%, we're still in the 1% in, in consideration of the rest of the world, in the world's perspective. We are very wealthy. But the, the, the difference is, what Jesus is speaking at the heart of the issue is not about wealth, it's about kingdom principles. It's about, it's about saying to God, God, this is not yours. This is not mine, it's yours. So that the people of Smyrna, even though they might have uh, possessions, and people throughout history, though they had possessions, would say, it's not mine. It's, the, it's yours, Lord. You do with that, whatever you want with it. And it, when it came to their life, they said the same thing. It's not mine. It's yours, Lord. So whatever you want to do with it. And when they get to heaven, that same principle will still apply. They'll say, it's not mine. It's yours, Lord. I lay it back down at your feet. But we also see this. Um, we also see when he's talking about the second death, that takes place a little long. A little later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, we read about that. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So when Jesus says that they will be spared the second death, this is what he's referring to. Again, we see the promises given there in Revelation chapter 2, and we see what it means later on in the book of Revelation in the vision. It is the second death. It is the great white from judgment. This is a terrible event. The great white throne judgment. I mean, imagine all of the dead being brought before the Lord. Everyone who's been anyone. Abraham Lincoln, Ben Frank, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, you name it. All the ones who were just random... <laughs> Random, random Joes, you and I, you know, we're brought, we're brought before the Lord. And it says books are open. Books are open that, that tell every deed we've done, all the good things we've done, all the bad things we've done, all the good things we've done with bad motives, right? And we're brought forth before the Lord and we're judged according to our works. Wait a second, I thought we were saved by grace, right? Well, here's what I think is going on. The Lord's going to open these books. And what's going to become very clear, I think this is a very courtesy, this is a very courtesy thing that the Lord is doing for humanity. He is judging them. And everyone is going to stand before the most holy God that they could never imagine in their, in their wildest imaginations. And he's going to go through every single thing that they've done, and there's going to be one realization at the end of everything. I think every single person is going to walk away from that event saying, I deserve hell. I deserve hell. I... All those people who said, I could earn my way into heaven, 
I could do the things, I, the more I worked for God, the more He loved me, all of those things will pass away. And we'll understand what Isaiah says when he says, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags, and our sin sweeps us away. Because at that moment, everyone walked away saying, I deserve help. You can throw the books at me. I understand now why it is that I deserve help. Except, the Lord is going to say to some, wait a second, there's another book here. It's the book of life. He's going to open up that book. Revelation 13, we're told that those whose names were written in the book of life from before the foundations of the creation of the world, those will be ushered into paradise. This is why I love that, you know, this universally applies to all the believers through all time. I love that it's given to the church this morning. The reason why is, you know, sometimes we feel like we have to do things for God. We feel like we have to be, um, we have to be better believers to earn God's love, to earn a place in heaven. And what about Smyrna? What about a church that was so desperate, so desolate? They, the only thing they had to hold on to was their faith. They had no riches. They couldn't do great works because the Romans were after them. They were underground. They had nothing to give. They were the homeless. They were the poor. What about them? This is a message about grace. It's a message for all of us who have ever been in a place in our life where we just couldn't go any further. It's a place, it's a message for us who, who struggled with our walk with God and sometimes we we're just holding on by faith. This is a message about grace. Because Ephesians tells us, Paul writes, he says, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any of you should boast. But then he says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, works which God ordained us to do. But while we were still sinners, he makes very clear, while we were still dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us and gave us his grace. This is the message for the church today. We will face persecution. In some ways it might not be as grave as Smyrna, but in some parts of the world it is. But we must stand firm with the Lord. But remember that at the center of this, at the center of the church, the message of the church of love was, uh, the center of the church of Ephesus was love the Lord. The center message of the church of Smyrna is hold on to grace. The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory Join of God. us on this journey as our pastor, Justin Hibbard, leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. New Hope Chapel is a ministry in Arnold, Maryland. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Special thanks to the least of these for the music for this podcast.